If you haven't been with us, we continue in our series out of the book of Malachi, where we are looking at an Old Testament declaration that has an 08 application. And we've been talking about a ancient truth for modern times. And, you know, as I looked back at what we've been studying, I've been amazed at the application that we have found uh, in this uh, book that was written over 2,500 years ago. There are very few things that took place 2,500 years ago that would bring uh, application or bring us to be thinking uh, about how it would impact our lives 2,500 years later. And yet this book and this prophetic message that Malachi gives to us through the work of the Holy Spirit and through uh, the message from God brings forth a ton of application, and I want to just share just a couple thoughts of what this ancient book has to say to us. In our first study, we learned that God's love for us is a perpetual and ongoing love, and that applies to not just those that heard it the first day in Malachi's time, but also for us today as well. This love is ongoing, and this love is perpetual even when we don't see it. God says, I've loved you at the beginning of this book, and that love continues to flesh itself out and make itself displayed even in the year 2008. The next thing we learned about is that God wants our best. He wants the best of who we are. He wants the best of what we are. He doesn't want us to give 50 or 25%. He wants us to give 100% in all that we do when it comes to our spiritual service to God. As a result of that, even 2,500 years ago, God said, and it's true today, that leftovers for God, your spiritual leftovers aren't good enough for God. God wants your best not what is left over after everything else has been done. Next, we learned in Malachi chapter 2 that God has a desire to see spiritually faithful leaders. Again, that wasn't just true in Malachi's day, but it's true for us today in our homes, in our churches, in our areas of business. God wants to see spiritually faithful leaders in every aspect of our lives. Then we learned about the importance of not only being spiritually faithful in our leadership, but being spiritually faithful in our relationships. In a world in the year 2008 that we find divorce running rampant, when we see people uh, turning their backs on one another, when people are dealing treacherously with one another in our day and age, we find the book of Malachi speaks about the importance of not breaking faith, first of all, with our God in heaven, second of all, with our spouses in the marriage relationship, and the third area was with one another, to make sure that we dealt in a way that was full of integrity and trustworthiness when it came to our relationships with God and other people. The next thing we learned about that is still impacting us 2,500 years later is that the Lord promises that he's going to come back. The Lord promises that he's going to come back. And we saw the first part of that great prophecy seen in the first coming of Jesus Christ. But we in the year 2008 look forward to what Christ is going to do when he is, uh, enters in through the clouds to take us to be at home with him as he has promised he would. He speaks about the importance of us understanding that in light of that truth, in light of that understanding, even 2,500 years ago, he told the righteous to purify themselves, to make sure they were ready for the coming of the Lord. And he also said to those that did not believe, those who found themselves in rebellion to God, that he would come and judge them. And two weeks ago, we learned about the importance of giving back to God, the importance of giving of our time, talents, And of course, our treasures. And so we come to this series once again where we have four more lessons out of this incredible book. And I hope that this study has changed uh, your life. That maybe it hasn't, uh, you know, I don't assume that every message that I preach is going to change dramatically who you are or, or, or how you're living your life. But I hope that each of these, uh, messages in this series have got you thinking. For you, for many of you who have never studied the book of Malachi, many, when I asked how many had read the book of Malachi, there were only a handful of people. I hope now that when we look, Village Bible Church, at that last book of Malachi, we can say, God met me in the book of Malachi. God taught me some things about lackluster ministry. 
and a laziness that comes with my Christianity and to spur me on towards those love and good deeds that God has called us to. I know this book of Malachi has taught me a lot. It's impacted me in many ways in studying it. So for those who haven't been with us, maybe you came into church for the first time this morning and you're saying, well, I don't know much about this book of Malachi. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. The 39 books that consist of the Old Testament, Malachi is book 39. And the book of Malachi is a dialogue between God and his people. And God is articulating first and foremost that he loves his people and he always has and he always will. But that love doesn't mean that there aren't some areas of uh, real frustration that God has with his people. God says, I've loved you, but there's some things you need to work on. It's like a father talking to his children. I love you and I always will love you and I always have loved you. But that doesn't mean you can go around living and doing the things that you're doing because this is not the right way to live if you say you love me. But how do the people respond? Admits God's love declaration to them. They respond by uh, asking back sarcastically, how have you loved us? What have you done for us? And every time God would bring forth a question, an accusation against the people, the people would respond back with a uh, very short answer saying, how have we done that? God said, you wearied me with your words in uh, chapter 2. And the people come back and say, how, God, have we wearied you? Well, why would they respond this way? We're going to learn that, and we've continued to learn, that these people are arrogant in their understanding of who God is and who they are in comparison to God. So God, in the book of Malachi, gives seven areas of frustration, seven areas that he is angry with his people about. And each time they come back with an arrogant statement. Well, we're going to look at another one today. So let us stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to be in Malachi chapter 3. And my reading is going to start in verse 6, and we're going to go through uh, verse 15. Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 through 15. This is what our text says this morning. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You're under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Here's our text for the morning. You have said harsh things against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said it is futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly the evildoers prosper and even those who challenge God escape. Father God, we come before you and we come yet again to this book. And Lord, I pray that our hearts and minds would be open to what you have to say to us today. Oh, Lord, it's hard for us to realize that we would be arrogant. It's hard for us to realize that we would uh, think that our way is better than yours. To think that uh, you're a God who has let us down. And yet, Lord, that characterizes who the people in Malachi's day, uh, what they were thinking And Lord, it it characterizes many in this place about what we are thinking. And yet, Lord, we know, as has just been sung, you are that fountain where every blessing comes from. You give us everything that we need. You minister to us in ways unspeakable. And yet, just as that hymn writer wrote, 
what is so true in Malachi's day and true in ours, that we are prone to wander. We are prone to wander, Lord, in our thinking about you. We're prone to wander in our obedience uh, that you require. And as a result of that, Lord, we begin to think wrong thoughts about you and we begin to do wrong things that your word has said that uh, people who follow you ought not be a part of. So, Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts this morning. We are a people prone to wander. We are a people who leave you so very often. And, Lord, it begins with what we think in our hearts and in our minds. So change us this morning and allow us to realize that we are wanderers at heart and bring us back to yourself, that we may obey you and worship you for all that you've done and all God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. What do you think about God? You come to church, your job is to think about God. And what is your thoughts about God? Do you think about him very often? Do you think about who God is and and what he's about and and the place that he has in your life? Is that a thought that goes on in your head? What are your thoughts about him? Is he a good God? Is he a great God? Is he a God that you are dependent upon in every aspect of your life? What are your real thoughts about God? Maybe for some here today, you don't have very good thoughts about God. You're here because someone else has told you you need to be here. Maybe your thoughts about God are, well, God's a good God because my mom and dad say he's a good God. But I haven't seen that. Maybe you're saying, well, God is a God that, while the Bible says he's good, I haven't seen much of that. And while I see Bible, the Bible stories that talk about all the great things God has done, i got to be honest with you, God's like a, a movie that has all the great previews, but when you get to the movie and actually watch it, all that was good in the movie we saw in the previews, and there's nothing left. And maybe you're walking out of church week in and week out and saying, you know what? It wasn't very good. There wasn't much to it. You know, our thoughts about God are so very important to who we are. And as Christians, we need to think about what our thoughts about God are surrounding and and how they involve the way we live. If you find yourself not thinking much about God, I'm going to assure you of something very important this morning. If your thoughts about God aren't very big or aren't very lofty or, or aren't uh, very impacting your life, then your service to God and your life for God isn't going to be very impacting. Your service and life for God isn't going to be life-changing. See, the problem we have as Christians is that we have a small view of God. We have this small view of what God can do in our lives. And even beyond that, as a result of that, what happens so many times is people have this small view of God, and what begins to happen is we begin to write our own story about God. We begin to utter the words, God isn't fair, or God isn't for me, or God doesn't love me, or God just expects me to work, and and there's nothing out of it that, that comes out for me. And that I look at my neighbor and I look at my friends and they don't serve God and they don't give to God. But look at their lives. Look how great they're living and and the happiness that they have. What does it gain us to serve God? That was the thinking that was going on in Malachi's day. And I can assure you today, without even taking a survey, that some of you have not thought about God or God's place in your life since the last time we were here when we opened up God's Word. And you haven't even thought about it. It's not even, it's not even on your radar. It's more important what's going on on the TV. It's more important with what's going on in your friend's life. It's more important what's going on in your kid's life than what you think about God. And as a result of that, you ask, why isn't God doing the amazing things that you see in God's Word? Why is it that you're not having the abundant joy? And you point your finger at God and say, you've let me down. But sadly, my friends, it is us who have let Him down. It is us who have kept ourselves from pursuing Him with all our hearts, all our minds, and all our strength. 
And as a result of that, because of our thinking, we find ourselves failing our God in heaven. Well, how do we know uh, what we really are thinking about God or knowing about God? How are we to know and understand what that looks like? Well, there's a test that we have this morning that I want us to look at. Uh, We're going to look at three things this morning in our text that will answer the question. But before you start uh, closing me off this morning, I want you to understand what uh, A.W. Tozer once said. I believe he rightly said it. He said, the strength of a Christian, the strength of a Christian. You call yourself a Christian? Every Christian would want to be a strong Christian. I don't know of any Christian who says, man, I hope I'm the weakest Christian around. I hope I fall to every temptation. I hope I fall to every sin. I hope that I find myself as a mediocre Christian. That doesn't seem to be the case. What happens is, is when we become a Christian, the Bible says now that you have received Christ, now grow in him, Colossians chapter 2, 6 and 7 says. Grow in him, be rooted up, strengthened up so that you can pursue holiness. And Tozer says the strength of a Christian. We want to be strong Christians. How do we do it? It solely depends upon our thinking of the Almighty. What you think about God is going to determine how you live. What you think about God is going to determine the victory you find over the devil and his ploys... What you think about God is going to determine how much Christ-likeness is going to be lived out in your life. And yet, just like in Malachi's day, what we as Christians in the year 2008 find ourselves doing is we say amen to that on Sundays. And we say how awesome that is here in the church. But as soon as we leave this place, it has nothing to do with what we think about God because our thought has nothing to do with God. And usually we don't find ourselves just lackluster in our thinking about God, but just like in Malachi's day, we go from uh, not just being positive or apathetic, but to the negative, and that's what we see in our text this morning. Notice what is said in verse 13. God comes to them after uh, sharing in uh, verses uh, 10 through 12. He says, bring your offerings to me. Give back to me. And in verses 10 through 12, he says, test me in this. Watch what I will do. I will throw open the gates of heaven. I will pour out so much blessing. I don't know if I shared this two weeks ago, but that word pour out uh, is used one other time uh, in the Old Testament. And it's found in the account of the flood where God says that he opened up the clouds and pour, pour, uh, brought forth rain from the sky. And that's the kind of picture of God wanting to pour out. He wants to flood us with his blessings. And yet notice the response of the people. After all those good things, God says, you will be called blessed and your land will be a delightful one. Notice what happens. He says, you have said harsh things against me. You have said harsh things against me. It's an amazing statement in the original Hebrew. Harsh things against me. Now, first we need to understand, if you circle or underline in your Bible, circle and underline the word said. Said. The word said literally means not that this was said to God, as if I'm talking to you right now, But what was being said and how it was being said was behind God's back. These harsh words that were being shared, they weren't articulating with God. How true is that for us as people? We don't usually talk to people uh, face to face. We don't usually tell people exactly how we feel. I'm one who's been told that I'm very blunt. I love that. People say that that's that's a, a, a area of weakness. I don't think it is. I got plenty of weaknesses, but I don't think that's one of them. We live in a world that isn't blunt enough. We'd rather smile through our teeth at a person that we can't stand than tell them the reasons why we don't like them. We'd rather lie to the people around us than to tell them actually what we're thinking about them. We go on with all these charades with either our family or people that we don't like to spend time with instead of just coming out and speaking our feelings 
about the certain situation that we're in. And that doesn't just happen in our lives. With people, that happens with God as well. Instead of these people coming out and saying, God, we're struggling with you. God, we got to be honest with you. You know, I know nowhere in Scripture where God got mad at someone saying something in their humanity when they were being honest with God. You look at the psalmist. You look at what David writes in the Psalms. And what do you see? You see him being blunt and honest with God. And not one time do I see God just laying David down and saying, how dare you say that? But there was always humility to his statement. He would come and he would say, God, I'm struggling. Why is it that uh, those that are, are full of violence, those who are full of anger, those who are full of sin, why do they prosper? And God answers his question. But yet we don't do that. So many times as Christians, we find ourselves not being like David, but being like the people in Malachi's day. Instead of talking to God, we talk about God. We find ourselves articulating our frustrations and our areas of uh, concern about God and what he's done away from God and behind his back. We find ourselves gossiping about God. But notice the content of what they said. Harsh statements. Harsh things. In the Hebrew, this means hard, harsh speech, mean words, terrible sayings, offensive statements. So here we have in Malachi's day, people who on Saturday would worship God. They would worship God and they would sing praises to God, and they would go through all the rituals. They would bring their animals for sacrifice. They'd be a part of the temple prayers. They would bring their children. They would speak about the patriarchs. They would do all that, and they'd put a smile on their face. And yet, after temple was done, after worship was done, they would go out from that place, and they wouldn't speak kindly about God. In fact, they wouldn't even not just say things about God, but they went beyond that and they said harsh things about God. But they didn't say them to God. They said them to other people who would listen. How many of us do that each and every week? We put a smiling face on, we put our best dresses and best suits on, or, and we go and we smile and we say, man, God's doing great things. Isn't, he? Isn't it great that the kids are out serving in Detroit? Isn't it great that the church is growing? Isn't it great that uh, VBS is going to just be a wonderful time? And we smile and we say, hallelujah, praise be to God. And then we go on through our week and bad things happen or things that bring us frustration. And we point our fingers at God and we say, how dare you do this? Who are you to tell me what to do? Who are you to convict me of the sin that I have? I want to be able to do what I want. And we begin to articulate not only to God, but to others, harsh things that have been said. We've got to get our thinking right. We've got to get our words right. These people were missing out. So how do we do it? We take the test. The first part of the test that we must ask if we want to uh, not be arrogant as the people in Malachi's day were, We have to ask three questions. Number one, the first question that we have this morning is, do I think that doing God's work is unfulfilling? Do I think that doing God's work is unfulfilling? Notice what it says in verse 14, the first part of it. After God accuses them, they say at the end of 13, what have we said against you? Think about how preposterous that is. God says, I know what you've said about me. I'm an omnipotent God. I'm an omniscient God. So I'm all powerful. I'm all knowing. And I'm at all places. I'm omnipresent. And so he says, you've said things about me. They say, wait a minute, we haven't said anything bad about you. You tell us what we've said about you. They have forgotten that you cannot gossip about God and not have God hear it. They've forgotten the God whom they worshipped and served, and as a result of that, they're accused of speaking harshly about God. Notice what they say first. God says, you have said it is futile to serve God. It is futile to serve God. This word futile here in the Hebrew literally can be translated in three different ways. And each of these are temptations that we face as Christians. Because there is no doubt in my mind, 
if you have served God for any amount of time, that this question has come up in your mind and your thinking. Maybe you've found yourself serving in a particular ministry week in and week out. And, and just finally, after one tough uh, day of ministry, you, you throw up your hands and you say, what good is it to serve God? I'm accomplishing nothing. Maybe some negative things have happened. Maybe there's been some personal attacks. Here you are serving God and people are attacking you. You say, well, is it really worth it? What fulfillment comes out of serving God? Well, there are three words that are translated. The first word is foolish. Write that somewhere. This uh, question is, is, do we feel foolish in what we're doing? This word foolish literally brings us to ask the question, why would we serve God? Why would we do it? Aren't there so many uh, better things to do with our life and our time than serve God? Couldn't you find better things to do than find yourself sitting at Village Bible Church on Sunday mornings worshiping God? Couldn't you find a better use of your summer week than serving in VBS? Couldn't you find something better to do than week in and week out? Find yourself doing activities and ministries that involve uh, sharing the gospel or growing in your Christian faith other than spending time with the youth or being in a small group. Aren't there better things that you can be doing? I don't know about you, but I've struggled with that at times. I find myself many a time studying and saying, I, I could be spending time with my children. I could be spending time with my wife. I could go to Cub games. Is it foolish for me? Isn't it foolish for me, Tim, to, to continue to serve God? What about in your giving? How foolish is, is it of us in this time of economic stability to give God our money? Doesn't he understand things are tight? Doesn't he look at what gas prices are? Doesn't he understand that the stimulus package checks could only go so far? How foolish is it of me to think that by my giving to God, it's going to do anything? And yet that's what the people were thinking, and that's what we think today. It's foolish to serve God. And this is what they were telling one another. It's foolishness. But notice what else is said. This word is translated insignificant. Not only foolish, but insignificant. How we are tempted in this as well. We begin to think, okay, even if I think that it's not foolishness to serve God, usually what happens is in our humanity and the temptations of the devil is to say, it's too insignificant. You going, Tim, and preaching to those people week in and week out, really, what good is one guy getting up and preaching going to do? Maybe you teach Sunday school class for a group of little kids and you say, you know, we get about eight minutes of Bible story in, and, and what does that really gain them? Are we just sitting there playing too many games and doing too many crafts and we're not getting anywhere with our, with our kids? What does it really gain me? Maybe you have a heart for evangelism and you say, what can one person do? I'm no Billy Graham. What can I do in my workplace or my school? I'm so small. What can God do with little old me? Is there any real chance for significant life change through me? Meaning, can God use me in a way that's going to really change the world that I'm in? The final word we see is translated fruitless. Fruitless. And it's not thinking that it's foolish. It's not thinking that it's small or insignificant. But it's the word fruitless. What does it gain me? What does it gain me to give of my time, talents, and treasures? What does it gain me to uh, invest so much time at Village Bible Church? What does it gain me to share my personal testimony with people who don't know Christ? What does it gain me? What is in it for me? So when these people say that it's futile to serve God, what they're saying is, is that it's foolish, it could be insignificant, and it's fruitless. All of these three thoughts lead us to speak like the people did in Malachi's day. It doesn't pay to serve God. But that leads us to a question this morning. Why do we serve God? 
Why do we serve God? If serving God isn't foolish, if serving God isn't insignificant, if serving God brings forth fruit, why do we do it? Turn for a moment to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, we're just going to look at the first verse of that great chapter. Paul has just gotten done in Romans chapter 11 and given this great doxology, speaking about the the depth of the wisdom of God and that uh, no one has the mind of the Lord. No one can be God's counselor. No one can uh, give to God because God has all that he needs. And he finishes, for from him and through him and to him are all things. Be him, be the glory forever. Amen. And then verse chapter 12 starts with the word therefore. He says, in light of what we've just learned, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. There are three reasons why we serve God. First, number one is God deserves it. Write that down. God deserves our service. Notice what Paul says. Paul says, therefore, I urge you, he says, I beg of you, I beseech you, brothers. Brothers are Christians. I beg you, Christians, in view of God's mercy, Why do we serve God? Because we look at the mercy God has shown us. What Paul says is, I beg you, I implore you to serve God. Why do we serve God? Because God deserves our service because of what he's done for us. The reason why you serve isn't because of how you feel or what it gains you. It's because of what God has done for you. We should never have to talk about the reasons why you should serve God. Every Christian should know and understand in light of God's mercy for me, a sinner who was dead in my trespasses and sin, who found myself being insolent, a God hater, one who turned my back on God in view of God's mercy for me that while I was still a sinner, he sent his one and only son To die, not for the perfect, not for the good, but for the wicked, like Tim Bidal. In light of that love that shed blood on the cross for a sinner like me, God says, I want you to serve. We should never have to tell you why you have to serve or talk you into serving. Because as a Christian, it should be a natural response. I'm going to share something. It's going to, it's going to offend some of you, and, and that's all right. I'm here to offend at times. If you don't want to serve God, then you better take your temperature to ask the question if you're a Christian or not. If you have no desire to serve, if you sit there and get upset when the church says, we need help in VBS or we need help in, in serving in this, that, or the other place, and you say, you know what? I'm just here to receive. I'm just here to, uh, I just want to know God's word. I'm going to tell you something. The word that God has said is God deserves our service. He deserves it because of what he's done for us. The next thing that we see is not only does God deserve it, he desires it. Notice what he says. He says that in view of God's mercy, we are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. When we do this, what Paul is saying is, is that we're going to set ourselves apart. We are going to find ourselves uh, being holy, doing what God has called us to. But notice what it says, that it would please God. God, in his character, is pleased when we serve him. When we serve the Lord, God is pleased with what we do. When we go and we take care of babies in the nursery or or, uh, minister to the children in children's worship or when we give of our uh, time or of our treasures, the Bible says, Paul tells us that God is pleased with this. It pleases him. If God deserves it, and it's something that God desires. Isn't something we should do? But he goes on. 
And it says that God demands it. Look at the end of verse three or verse one. He says, this is your spiritual act of worship. Now you say, well, Tim, that's not talking about service. I want you to understand that uh, the Greek word for worship there is also translated, is synonymous with the word service. In fact, when Paul talks about in, uh, uh, I believe it's 2 Timothy, in the opening passage of 2 Timothy, where he talks about the God whom he serves, it's a Greek word, the God whom he worships. They're synonymous with one another. They are interchangeable. And what God is saying is, what is your job? What is your purpose in life? It is to serve me. Your purpose isn't just to sit under some great teaching, whether on the radio or on the television or at your home or at church. Your job isn't just to be a sponge that soaks up all the understanding of God's word. But what God says your purpose is, is to soak up that stuff and then God's going to squeeze that sponge so all that you've learned, all that you've understood is been then being pushed out to other people. These people didn't understand it. They didn't understand that God deserved their worship and praise and service. They didn't understand that God desired it. They had heard that God had demanded it, but they weren't doing it. So what do we see take place? We see a mindset that comes out as a result of this. Where did this come from? First of all, we see that it uh, reflected a fanciful notion. They say it is futile to serve God. Now, now they're in dreamland. They're in dreamland. You should write that in your Bible. Malachi, people in Malachi's day in dreamland. The reason why is nowhere in the text do we see them serving God. They're in la-la land. They think they're serving God. Nowhere in the text does it say that they were serving God. They were looking for opportunities how to shortcut God, how to get around God's requirements. And then they go around and tell their friends and everybody else, you know what? I've served God for so long. I'm tired. I find myself weak as a result of all the service I've done. And so what I've come to a conclusion is, is that it's futile to serve God. This is a fanciful notion. And some of us think that way as well. We serve God and we say, wow, you know, I ushered today and it was tough. And I was really serving God. I I sat 40 people today. Or maybe we begin to sit there and we begin to say, well, you know, I I, I preached a long message and and I have the right to, to say, man, I'm really working hard and serving God. But what we have to ask the question is, are we truly serving God? Is God's work going to be hard? Yes, that's why they call it work. Every time Paul talks about it in the book of Acts, he speaks about giving yourselves wholly to the work of the Lord. He tells the Corinthian church that as well. Give yourselves over to the work of the Lord. Work isn't always easy. Just look at me. I'm sweating up here. It's not easy. But you know what? It's not futile. And yet these people were speaking not out of experience, but from their own perspective. And I'll tell you, when we begin to do that, we're going to fail God. When we begin to speak from our own perspectives, we're going to miss out on what God is saying. Not only did it reflect a fanciful notion, but it resulted in a false statement. It resulted in a false statement. Think about this. Not only were they in dreamland, but they were speaking falsehoods about God. They were saying things that were untrue about God. If someone here said, Tim, it is futile to serve God, I would say that is a lie. I know of no individual who has given themselves over to the work of the Lord on their deathbed who said, I wasted my time serving the Lord. But what do we hear? I wish I could live my life over again and serve the Lord more. It's not futile to serve God. That's a false statement. The Bible is full of stories of men and women who trusted God. And life may have been very difficult for them, but at the end of the day, they say, praise be to God. I'm so glad I gave myself over to the work of the Lord. I would hope that we at Village Bible Church would have people who are ministering who would say, it's not futile to serve God. It is the most rewarding and fulfilling opportunity that I have in life. There are many days, many Sundays, I walk, I go home, I don't walk, I go home 
And the devil will say, why did you waste your time? All that studying. And you know what the devil does? He points out the people even right now who are sleeping. Boy, that just offended some people who are sleeping. And who do I beeline on? Those people that are sleeping. And I'm sitting here and I've poured 10 to 15 hours into a message of studying God's Word. And the devil says, see? Right quadrant, fourth row back, drooler in aisle two. And if I begin to think that way, it is easy to say, what is it worth? Now, I can say that with some real honesty because this isn't my full-time job. I can say this because I'm not investing, you know, what, what I would do for my 9 to 5 or 7 to 6 times that you work, whatever times that you work. I got another job. I don't do this, again, I'm not saying full-time staff members do this for the money. That's not the case at all. But this is done because of a love that I have. And I do it with the time that I have left over to serve the Lord. Why? Because it's not a futile thing. Even though at times it is so hard to keep from that temptation, I can tell you with all my heart, preaching and doing what I do here is hard work. And at times it is demoralizing. At times it, it, it affects uh, my life. And every other way things may be going good. And then a phone call comes, a counseling session comes, and I find myself weeping in a car because of how sin has ruined someone's life. And I sit there and go, well, why do I have to be a part of that? And yet what I'm so thankful for is God has given me the opportunity to do this because God is changing people. And it isn't fruitless. And that we don't find ourselves uh, not just seeing fruitlessness in our ministry. And it's not insignificant. If one life is changed as a result of me studying God's Word, that is enough. And the question needs to be is, have I changed? What if God doesn't want to change any of you because of my ministry? So be it. But I do know He wants to change me. And how insignificant is it that God may want to change a bald guy who studies the Word? And gets up and God may say, you know what, it doesn't have anything to do with the people you preach to. It has all to do with you, Tim. What fruit comes out of that? That's significant. And nor is that foolish. And yet we begin to look at the outcomes and we say, well, well why should I serve God? Why should I teach those, those uh, snot, uh, snot-nosed kids? Why should I give to the Lord? Well, maybe God wants to change you. Maybe it may not be to change any of those kids. It may be just to change you. It's a fulfilling experience. Notice what happens next. They move forward and they say it's a, a false statement. They say it's, a, it's because of a, a fanciful motion. You know where this comes from? If you know geography, you will know that this type of thinking is what produced the Dead Sea. Many of you know the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is full of salt. It's full of a, a ton of salt. And as a result of that, nothing can grow in the Dead Sea. Well, why is it that the Dead Sea is dead. The reason why is there are six rivers running into the Dead Sea and not one of them runs out. So it's taking in, it's never giving out. If you're a child of God and you're not giving out and only taking in, learn from geography, you are a Dead Sea. God wants you to give. And if you don't want to be stagnant, if you don't want to have stinky water in your life, then start letting the water flow in and let it flow out. There's nothing worse than finding yourself in a marshy, smelly area that has no water moving back and forth. But that's where many Christians are at today. And what do they say? I'm serving God and it doesn't do anything. And they're lying about God because it is a wonderful, fulfilling and rewarding thing to serve the Lord. Isaiah has two passages. I won't have you turn there by Isaiah 65, 13 through 15 and Isaiah 32, 17 and 18. Speak about the blessings that come when we serve the Lord. There are wonderful blessings that come when we serve the Lord. But notice what they say next. It's our second question. And that is, do you think submitting to God's will is unrewarding? Notice they go on in Malachi chapter 3. And they say, what have we said against you, God? And he says, you've said it's futile to serve me. And then notice what they say. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements? 
Not only do they say that serving God is unfulfilling, but they go one step farther and they say obeying God is unrewarding. Now, why would they do that? It comes from a wrong attitude. Write that in your outlines. It comes from a wrong attitude. These guys' attitude needs to be checked. They ask the question, Why? what did we gain in carrying out God's requirements? What did we gain by doing his will in our vernacular today? This word, this phrase, what did we gain, is an important phrase. Write this somewhere in your outline. This phrase was used by seamstresses. This word gain or profit, I believe the New King James translates it. What did it profit us? A seamstress would use this term when, when they would be cutting a piece of fabric from a larger loom of fabric. And what they would do is they would get their cut. They would get their part. And so they would cut it and the other part stayed, but this was theirs. This was their piece of fabric. And they would go to the source of the fabric the loom, they would cut it and say, now this is mine. The rest is yours, but this is mine. This is what the people in Malachi's day were asking. They were saying, all right, God, you're the loom of fabric, and we'll do what you say. You're the source, but where's our cut? What's our part? What do we gain? What's our kickback? What's our percentage? What do we get from obeying you? What's the dividends? See, we look at obedience with God, my friends, as a stock in the stock market. What is it going to return for me? That's not what obedience is all about. And yet that's what they were saying. Well, how do we know if we're doing that or not? Turn for a moment to the book of Job. You want to know if you're struggling with this seamstress thought in your Christian life? What's in it for me? Look at what Job says. Turn to the book of Job, chapter 1. If you're in Malachi, you're going to go midway through uh, the Old Testament. And right before the book of Psalms, you're going to find the book of Job. It's right between the book of Esther and Psalms, the book of Job. How do you know if you're serving God, if you're doing God's will, without having that desire to say, what's my cut, what's my percentage? Job gives us the answer. Job chapter 1, starting in verse 8. Now in the first, uh, uh, let's see here, the first uh, five verses of the text, it talks about this guy named Job. What does it say about him? Well, it says he's blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. That's good. Good character of this guy. But then the writer articulates a little more about Job. He had seven sons, three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of of oxen, 500 donkeys, large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. So what's that? That's his portfolio. He's got a lot. He's got a family. He's got good finances. But notice what happens next. His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And what that's saying is not only does he have a family, not only does he have finances, but man, the life is good. What was happening was is there was clamoring to say, hey, let's get the family together. Invite the sisters. Bring them together. Let's have a good time. We love Job. We love mom and dad. And and we love each other. Man, Job had it going great for him. Of course he would serve God, right? But notice what happens. On the day, verse 6, the angels came uh, to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came with them. The Lord said to him, where have you come from? Satan says, from roaming through the earth, going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright. A man who fears God and shuns evil. That's what we should be doing. God should be able to say that of all of us. But notice what the devil says. Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge of protection around him and his household and everything he has? Have you not blessed the work of his hands so that the flocks and herds are spread throughout the land? What he's saying is, of course, God, Job would love you. I'm not going to fight that. God, he loves you because you're the, you're the genie from Aladdin. You just keep giving him what he wants. He's got a great family. His kids love him and love each other. 
He's got all the things that he needs. Of course he would love you. But what does the devil say? You get rid of all that and let's see what will happen. That's the test that we have to take as Christians. What would happen if God took everything away from you? Would you worship him? Would you say obeying God is rewarding? Would you say, as Job did, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord? I don't know what I would say in that circumstance. I would hope that God would give me enough faith and enough grace to be able to stand in that time. But I remember a time in in my dad's life that that question uh, came up. Two weeks after my uh, older brother uh, passed away in the car accident that he was in, we got a call. My mom was here. Many of you know this story. My mom was here. We were attending a village at the time. She was at uh, choir practice Thursday night. And uh, mom was going to be home around 9 o'clock. That was normal fare for, for after choir practice. And she's not home. She's not home. And we get a call from a young teenage girl who's uh, uh, at the uh, gas station who's called on the payphone to say, I'm sorry to tell you, but I've called an ambulance. Your wife has been in an accident. She's unconscious. And I don't know any more information, but you need to come. They're, they're taking her away. And I remember my dad got off the phone. And the first thing is a man of faith. The first thing he asks is, Lord, what are you doing? What are you doing? Help me understand what you're doing. You've taken my son. Uh, is, this, is this now taking of my wife? And then he stopped and he said, Lord, whatever you do, I will worship and serve you. This isn't some great missionary from far off lands. This isn't some old guy in the, this was my father. And as a teenage boy, I saw my dad fear that he was losing. Not only his son two weeks beforehand, but now his wife. Scared to death that another part of him was going to be lost. And he didn't fight God. He didn't yell at God. He said, Lord, whatever you'll do. Gosh, I wish I had the faith of Bill Bedall. You know, we'd be different. And he's no he's got a lot of issues. I can tell you, my dad's got a lot of issues. And we can be dysfunctional. Lord knows my parents are dysfunctional. And my mom's still here, just so you know. Someone's gonna come up and say, What happened to your mother? Mom's still here. She's fine. Still kicking and screaming her sons. And um But you know what? Can we say that in America? Can we say that at Village Bible Church? If the Lord took everything away from us, could we still stand and worship God? Can we still say, as Paul did, in good, in plenty, and in need, I am content in all circumstances? It's a wrong attitude. But notice it's a wrong assessment. It's a wrong assessment. This thought was not only that it was futile to serve God, but what they begin to say is obeying God is worthless. It's worthless. Don't waste your time doing it. What God has promised hasn't come true. And that it's not going to get you anywhere. Let me tell you something. First of all, obeying God is not going to get you any healthier. Obeying God isn't going to get you any more money in the bank account. Obeying God isn't going to per se bring you the things of this world that you think will bring you happy. But the Bible says that we trust in the Lord that we will exhibit the fruits of the Spirit. That love, peace, joy, patience, long-suffering will be evident. That when we pursue God, we will find endurance and perseverance and character and hope. And when we do that, love will become an outpouring of who we are. Our lives may not get any better, but the joy of the Lord will be our strength in those times of struggle. And these people had the wrong assessment. They wanted to know what is obedience going to do for me in the now. And the Bible promises that there will be a return for our obedience. There will be a return, but it may not be today. What Christians want is what is it going to do for me today? Lord, I read my Bible today, now fix my marriage. Lord, I pray today, now bring my rebellious child home. And we make these deals with God. I will obey, uh, Lord, if you do this. It's like my five-year-old, Daddy, I will do what you said. But what it means is I get to watch a half-hour movie before I go to bed. And we say, well, no, son, obedience is doing what I say, no matter what the deal is. The deal is you obey me and you pray for my good favor that I'll let you watch a movie. And yet we make deals with God because we want the here and now. The Lord promises good that will come. 
In fact, it reminds me of this story. Late one uh, night, many, many years ago, an elderly couple walked into a small third-rate hotel in Philadelphia to rent a room for the night. Now, there was a big convention going on in town, and though the couple had checked in with several hotels, they were unable to find a room in any of them. The young clerk on duty told the couple he couldn't help because, like, uh, like their motel, all the others was, were completely sold out. As they turned to walk away, the young man, touched by their weariness, said to them, I understand that it's winter and that it's cold, so I have an idea. I don't want you to live out in the cold for one night. There's no use to look any further. There are no rooms in town, but I have a room in this hotel, and I know I'm working right now and won't be needing it until morning. It isn't much, but the sheets are clean, and you can at least have a place to sleep for the night. The elderly couple protested that they didn't want to inconvenience him by taking his room, but he insisted that they stay the night. The next morning when the elderly couple came back, they thanked the young man profusely. The man said to them, you are too fine a clerk to spend the rest of your life working in this kind of hotel. One day I will build you a hotel and I'll let you run it. Sure, I bet you will build me a hotel, the clerk said. Two years later, the clerk received a letter from that man. The young clerk had even forgotten about what he had done on that night. But this man was now looking at an invitation for him to come to New York City to visit them. Included in the letter was a round-trip train ticket to New York. When the young man arrived in New York, the couple met him, were so excited to see him. They took him to the corner of 5th Avenue and 34th Street. The elderly man, now a little older, began to point to a newly constructed, magnificent building that looked more like a castle than a building. It was superior in design and construction from the foundation to the roof. The man said, young man, this is the hotel I promised you. It's yours to manage as long as you want to. The young man replied, you must be joking, sir. The man said, this is no joke. I told you I would build you a hotel that you would run, and there it is. The elderly man's name was William Waldorf Astor. The young clerk was George C. Bolt. The hotel's name was the Waldorf Astoria. You know, we serve God because we think at that moment we serve God, He's going to do something for us. It's a wrong thought. God promises that He's building a place in heaven. And He says, I will come back to take you. And in that moment, we're in those mansions in heaven. The Bible says that we will be given crowns because we've obeyed Christ and because we have served Christ with all our heart. Don't look for the here and now. Look forward to what God is going to do. Do it out of what God has done for you. And as a result, just as this young clerk did, God will be true to his promise and we will receive what we need to. Finally, let me quickly go through our third point. The last part of this test we have to ask is, do we believe or do we think that God's word is unreliable? Verse 14 and 15. Notice what is said. You've said it's futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly the evildoers prosper. And even those who challenge God escape. Let me close with this. You start thinking that the work of the Lord is unfulfilling. You start thinking that doing God's will is unrewarding. And you will begin to bring into question the word of God. Because God's word is full of things that say, my work is fulfilling. My will is rewarding. You do these things and you will be blessed. They started asking the question, no, God, that isn't the case. Where have you been? And as a result of that, they start to bring into question the promises of God. Now, notice what happens when you begin to approach God's word this way. There are hypocritical actions. Notice what is said. What did it gain us by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? The word mourners there is literally in the Hebrew the word black. That's why we wear black to funerals. Black, a mourning. And what they were saying was, is one, two commentaries in fact, speak of 2 Chronicles 7.14. Anybody know what 2 Chronicles 7.14 says? If my people who are called by my name will what? Humble themselves and pray. And then God goes on and says, I'll heal your land. I'll bless you. What is being said here is, Lord, when Solomon uh, was told that, 
We did all that you said. We've carried out your requirements. We've even mourned, meaning we have put ourselves in sackcloth and ashes. And we've done all that you've asked us to. We have mourned for you. We have the spirit of humility, Lord. And you haven't done anything for us. And the problem is, is it was hypocritical. They hadn't done that. Nowhere in our text does it say that they mourned. Nowhere in our text did it say that they uh, pursued a dependency on God. They were arrogant. They weren't dependent. And so what happens? They say, hey, God, you've lied to us. We've humbled ourselves. We've prayed. And you haven't taken care of us. You haven't healed our land. You haven't ministered. You just did that again, God. You said that we would be a delightful land and we find ourselves in captivity. Lord, you keep lying. Stop lying to us. We've done our part. You haven't. Here's the problem. When we stop looking at God's word for what it says and for what it is, we will begin to elevate who we are and devalue who God is. Your, your focus on Scripture, your um, priority on Scripture is going to determine something. It's going to determine how good you think you are and how low you think God is. And that's why the Word of God, the Bible says it cuts through. What does it cut through? It cuts through all that garbage. It cuts through because it says God is all in all. And what are you? You're a sinner. You're a sinner. It brings forth hypocritical actions. It also brings forth hateful accusations. Look at what they say. We call the arrogant blessed. Certainly the evildoers prosper. And those who challenge God escape. You know what they're saying? They're pointing their finger at God and saying, you've lied. You said we would be the blessed ones. You said if we obeyed you and we worshipped you, you would take care of us. But you know what's going on? Our neighbors... They're being blessed. Our neighbor, their food is on the table and they've got all that they need. Our neighbors are going on vacations and we're not. Our neighbors are being able to go to all the ball games. Our neighbors are able to do all these things. Our neighbors drive nicer cars than we do. And they don't love the Lord. They don't give of their money to the Lord. They don't serve the church like we do. And so it must be futile to serve God. It must be a worthless or unrewarding to obey God. And so what do we do? Then God, if that's the case, if we've determined that you are an unreliable God as a result, and as a result, we're not going to believe your promises. We're not going to believe what you say. And this is what they were saying in Malachi's day. I want to read just one more passage for you as I close. Joshua chapter 23 for a moment. Let us never forget this because this is what's going to happen. We're going to get a bad medical report. And we're going to look at the unbelievers who are healthy and we're going to say, well, the Lord has forgotten me. The Lord has uh, lied about his promises of taking care of me. We're going to run out of money and we're going to look at the riches of the uh, pagans. And we're going to say, Lord, you've lied to us. You haven't done what you said you were going to do. But notice what Joshua tells his people that they would never forget. Joshua 23, verse 14. This is a huge statement. Joshua 23, verse 14, in his farewell address to the leaders of Israel, this is what he says. Now I am about to go the way of all the earth. I'm going to die, is what he's saying. You know with all your heart and soul that not one of all the good promises the Lord God gave you has failed. Every promise has been fulfilled, not one has failed. Do you believe that this morning? Because if you don't, your view of God is going to be so stinking warped. You're going to start saying things that you never thought that you would have. You're going to start calling God a liar. You're going to start saying that God has uh, given up on his promises. And what that's going to create is it's going to create a, a uh, snowball effect that will move you to start not serving God and not obeying God because you'll say, in the end of it, it really doesn't matter. And it comes down to finally, my friends, your thoughts on God. What are you thinking about God this morning? Is He everything 
that you believe him to be, of what he says of himself, that he loves you and he wants to minister to you. He wants to care for you. He wants to make sure that every promise that he's given you is fulfilled. He wants to see you serve him, not because of uh, uh, this uh, need for you to serve, but he wants to do it because he's made you. And like a good creator, he knows what is best for his creation, that he has saved us because we are his workmanship that are created in him to do the good works that God has for us. Or are we going to be like the people of Malachi's day who give attitude, who have the wrong ideas about God, who are hypocritical in our actions, and who begin to accuse God? Let that never be said of Village Bible Church. Let us be a people who honor and serve our God because of all that he's done for us. Let's pray. Father God, what an amazing couple verses. All that you've shared with us this morning. Lord, I know it's easy for us to lose track of of where we're going. It's easy for us to grow weary and tired in our pews, sitting and listening. But Lord, I pray that we would check our thinking at the door. That we would ask the tough questions. Why am I serving you? Why am I obeying you? Do I believe that you are reliable in what you say? Oh Lord, I pray that we would find answers not of our own accord not of our own thoughts but answers that come from your word that Lord we would be able to say as is said in the Psalms that we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good that we have found fulfillment and peace and joy and contentment in all circumstances because we serve you the living God who loves us and who's given himself up for us that we may have eternal life. What is it for us to say, Lord, that it's not worthwhile to serve and obey you? Lord, it's the greatest thing that we can do. We have nothing. We are nothing without serving and obeying you. And we thank you for that opportunity. Let us never in our sin be tempted to say that it gains us nothing. Lord, we were nothing and we've gained everything because of the person and work of your Son. Let us never forget that. And in doing that, that out of that is an outpouring of the greatest service, the greatest worship, and the greatest trust amidst all circumstances that we would be solely dependent on you and you alone because that pleases you and you desire it more than anything in the world. We love you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.